0: High in fifth try now, uh, because I keep, you know, saying the wrong things, going lots of hmmm, and then there's a dog barking, because I'm in a hostel in uh, Mexico, in Oaxaca. Uh, Let's hope it works out this time.
1: Thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. how are you all this week? We had a big storm pass through on Sunday, uh, Storm Kira, which caused quite a lot of disruption across the country. Some roads around here were flooded or blocked with fallen trees, and there were a few structural problems. But I think I've managed to escape with merely a couple of roof tiles off, which has caused a small drip in my bedroom. It's not the first time it's happened at that particular spot, so it suggests there's a weak point in the roof, and I'm sure it's nothing that can't be patched up by an expert. It was quite a big storm, as UK storms go, Gusts of wind around here anyway, upwards of a hundred kilometers an hour, a bit higher on mountain tops, and short intense bursts of like sixteen millimeters of rain in an hour. I know it's nothing compared to the hurricanes and cyclones you get into places like the Caribbean and the South Pacific, but remember the UK never gets extremes of weather. Places like Mongolia and Kyrgyzstan bounce between minus forty and plus forty Celsius over the course of a year, and we get excitable if it goes fifteen degrees either side of about ten. Two centimetres of snow knocks out the entire transport network of the West Midlands, a conurbation of over three million people, and our railway lines melt in temperatures that places like West Africa and Sri Lanka would consider average. We're just not a nation that copes well with extremes. Anyway, it didn't last very long, and while the wind stayed breezy over the course of the next couple of days, most of the damage was done in that first few hours on the Sunday. Indeed, I went out for a walk across my town on the Sunday afternoon, and it was quite pleasant, even quite bright and sunny. It's stayed like that all week, albeit the breeze is quite icy when it gusts through. It's also tried to snow at least twice this week, but hasn't lasted terribly long either time. I've had a bit of a mental health shock this week. I finally bit the bullet and checked my bank balance, and I've considerably less money than I thought I had. I don't know why. It's because I've been overspending without a care in the world and burying my head in the sand as to how long it'll last. It's been a bit of a wake-up call, to be honest, but hopefully it's not too late to do something about it. I suspect the days of spending £9 on a can of beer are now long gone, and though I was going to travel much less this year anyway, this has pretty much confirmed it. What else? Oh yeah, it's uh, Valentine's Day tomorrow. I thought I'd mention it, because it tends to be an important event to some people. I have to say I've never really understood it. I've always been of the opinion that if you're in a committed relationship, you should be demonstrating you love every day of the year, and not just on the one day, especially a day where you've basically been told to do it by a third party. This isn't even my asexual persona talking, it's just surely what you're supposed to, well, do. Obviously, it makes no difference to me either way, because, you know, I'm not dating anyone. And while there are people I find romantically attractive, this is not the right time to have that conversation with them, as it would be mega awkward. Plus, you'll know that it'll never work out in that way. There probably never is a right time for me to have that conversation, to be honest, so you'll never know. Actually, I'm 100% certain that everybody I have a crush or squish on knows that I have a crush or squish on them, but are equally reluctant to bring it up in conversation because, also, mega awkward, but for the opposite reason. That makes it sound like I have a lot of squishes. Again, you'll never know. It's also Quirky Alone Day, uh, a day to celebrate loving being yourself for who you are. Quirky Alone, defined by American author Sasha Cargan as someone who enjoys spending time on their own and so is happy to wait for the right person to come along rather than date indiscriminately. This is also partly why I've never used Tinder. And, while several years ago I was on Cupid, most of the people I encountered through there are, and only ever were, friends rather than lovers. And even the lovers are now still friends. Internet news. One of my Twitter friends, Laura from Stories from a Backpack, has a website where she invites people on to give answers to questions she sets them about travel. She approached me last week to see if I wanted to take part. Of course I did. The post went live on Tuesday this week, so head on over to her website, which is storiesfromabackpack.com. And see what I wrote in answers to questions like What has travel taught me? And What's one moment for a trip that I'll never forget? Also, regarding online activity I've been musing recently about Patreon This seems to be quite popular amongst artistic and creative types In case you don't know, it's kind of a cross between a crowdfunding service and a subscription platform whereby people donate money in return for access to specialist or unique content from the creator or things like branded trinkets some of my Twitter friends have recommended I start one up, but I've been musing about one earth I could actually offer. It's hard enough getting around to doing what I do publish, so providing extra content feels, well, a step too far right now, let's be honest. A couple of tweets have suggested I offer things like bespoke trip advice, tips on how to tell stories more effectively, and even provide help with data analysis, but I'm not sure I'd be able to do them effectively, or even if they'd prove popular. One of my other tweeps suggested I sell pictures and videos of my feet via the OnlyFans site. That's a huge stereotype, and everybody in the world is doing that. Speaking of feet, further to the ongoing attempts with Park Run, you may be saddened to hear that I didn't even leave my bed this week, never mind failed to find it. The reason being, I would have had to have been out of the house about quarter past six in the morning, have a tight bus transfer, then take another long bus all the way to the run, and I wouldn't have been able to take a bag, so I'd have to travel in what I was going to run in, and it was about one degree Celsius. Yes, there are nearer park runs, but weirdly, they require a bit of effort to get to from my house, and none of them are barefoot friendly, so I'd have to run awkwardly in walking sandals, which wouldn't really have worked. This is, however, going to be less of a problem in the next few months. I have some, uh, news. If you recall, a couple of podcasts ago, I was musing about my future, my house, and how I didn't feel comfortable living there, even though, well, it's my house. Well, I have a solution, at least for the next few months. Basically, I'm moving out, and I'm renting a room off a friend. I've known her several years. She owns a an old Victorian house. It's one of those types of houses, so beloved of students. Three floors, large ceilings, etc. In, obviously, Sheffield. And to earn a bit of extra money, she rents her spare rooms out to lodgers. For a while, she's been hinting that I'd make a perfect lodger for her, as I'm quiet, relatively house-proud, <laughs> and unlikely to cause issues like stealing credit card details or inviting random strange men in for a bit of hanky-panky, who then get angry with not being given what they thought was an offer and end up breaking down the front door. Slash Me cancels my subscription to hook-up sites like FabGuys and Gadar. I worked out that if I were to take my laptop and go on holiday for a while, my average nightly spend would be considerably more than the cost of renting her room. Plus, it's a place I know well, I've been to her house many times, and she lives about a 20-minute walk from the city centre. Where I live now, my last bus out of Nottingham City Centre is a timetable-friendly 11.59, but it's still in total maybe a 45-55-minute journey depending on traffic and passenger count which means that, while I could do more social things there, it's a bit of a drag to do it regularly and may involve a lot of late nights. The trip's also about £6.60 return, and that adds up on a monthly basis. Plus, I feel there's going to be more options, especially living so close to the centre, so that'll help some of the find-my-tribe elements of my things-to-do list that I knocked up in mid-December. More practically... It'll be a calmer living experience, with less noise less hassle. I'll have more space to relax in, and especially to cook, so weirdly it won't work out as expensive as living in two houses might appear. Currently I'm spending a lot on supermarket snack food. And Greg's, obviously. Whereas going forward I can just once again bulk buy from cheap supermarkets. So, moving into her house makes perfect sense from a practical, logistic, and obviously a mental health point of view. I think it'll make me more rested, less stressed about life and housing, and be able to enjoy myself more. Hopefully it will work out like that, but I do need to be pushed occasionally to do things. Accountability is quite important, and I have a couple of friends who are willing to provide me that big stick. So, on to this week's topic, luggage, and why you travel with what you do. I have my own ways, which I'll come on to later, but before then I asked a few of my friends what they travelled with and why, and this is what they told me. First up is Alexei from TravelX, talking about how he generally travels with only hand luggage. For the last couple of years, I have largely been travelling carry-on only.
2: I do enjoy having as little as possible with me when I'm travelling, whether it's for a weekend away or for a longer trip. I use a 35-litre bag and I sort of find that that helps me be really mindful of the kind of stuff that I take with me. And I do think that that allows me to sort of uh,
1: maximise the gear that I bring, rather than just take stuff and pack it just for the sake of it. Rubens, from being around the globe, doesn't get the whole hand luggage thing, but he tells a quick tale of someone he met travelling very light indeed. I have to say I'm not travelling with just a hand luggage, but uh, I remember I met a guy who was on the road for eight months and he just had a a small bag, let's say 24 litres bag. That's all he had for his eight months. So I was quite surprised, and I respect those people. But uh, no, I don't travel with just hand luggage. Amanda, from Not A Ballerina, makes one practical case for not carrying hand luggage, even though she always used to and will again. It's much harder to do so when you have children.
2: Before I had my son, I adored travelling with hand luggage only. I even, uh, well... Persuaded? I'm not sure. Maybe my mum started it. Anyway, my mum and I both used to love to travel hand luggage only. We spent a couple of weeks in Russia and the Baltics with just our tiny backpacks each, not even one of those, you know, bigger cases that you're actually allowed. And yeah, it's just so freeing. So I love being hand luggage only. However, then my son came along And if you have ever traveled with a child, you might realize, especially when they're small, they need a disproportionately large amount of stuff. So when my son was a baby, I needed to travel with all kinds of things to be able to feed him, entertain him, put him to sleep somewhere, all of this stuff. And that drove me insane because that was definitely, you know, bye-bye to hand luggage only. That became way too tricky. As he got a bit older, we tended to travel just the two of us. So when he was like three, four, five, six, often there'd be just him and me. And although in theory, the amount of stuff we needed was probably a hand luggage amount of stuff for the two of us, he was too young to reliably deal with his own luggage. And, you know, I did it a couple of times, but then I would often end up carrying two relatively big lots of hand luggage and try and wrangle him, and you know, especially if he was tired or whatever, that was just not the most pleasant. Um, So yeah, there's definitely times when you're traveling with a kid that it is the harder choice to try and go hand luggage only. But I have to say, he's nine now, nearly 10. Our most recent trip to Malaysia, we did hand luggage only. He looked after his luggage the whole way. He was fabulous. And so I feel like we have turned a corner and now there's going to be a lot more hand
1: luggage-only trips in our future. Laura, from Tumbleweed Chronicles, has a practical and budgetary approach to her luggage requirements, but also gives one disadvantage that I would never thought of.
3: I only started to travel light because I'm cheap. A decade ago, the airline started charging for checked bags, so I stopped checking bags. And now it's just out of habit. And it's also nice to not have to wait by the baggage carousel. You can just get off the plane and go. I just did two weeks in the Philippines with only my purse and the backpack. And not a backpacker's backpack, but like a school bag type. And it was just fine. And when I did two weeks in the Middle East a couple years ago, same thing. The only downside I have with it is that I prefer to wear contacts to glasses. But when I travel, I have to wear my glasses because I can't carry enough contact solution in a carry-on because it goes over the liquid allowance. And then, kind of as an aside to that, it's not that important, but it's a little annoying, is that I don't take pictures of myself In real life, I have very few pictures of myself in daily life. And then I only take pictures of myself when I'm travelling. But then they're either pictures of me with my glasses and I don't like them. Or I'll be wearing my prescription sunglasses. So the vast majority of the photographs of me that exist in the last eight years, I'm wearing sunglasses. I don't know, I don't mind for a few, but I have eyes.
1: I hate the idea of wearing contacts. I'm really squeamish about eyes to the extent my old work colleagues used to annoy me by purposely putting their fingers in their eyes and rubbing them. It's one of the reasons I've never considered later eye surgery. In fact, despite my left eye being so ridiculously poor that an ex-girlfriend of mine, who was registered blind in her left eye, wore my glasses once and said, wow, I can see. Anyway, last up is my Swedish friend Inga, who still doesn't have any web presence apart from Facebook, who gives an opposite viewpoint and tells us why she travels with as much as she can carry, which it turns out is a lot.
0: Hello, my name is Inga. I'm a travel addict. You would know it from looking at me, though. Uh, in fact, if I were to step into your hostel, you'd probably give me one look and write me off as a first-time backpacker. And why is that? Well, basically because I consistently and knowingly commit the traveler full power of carrying a very large backpack indeed. The thing is, I'd much rather have all the things I might need with me when I travel. I don't want to have to go buy a warm sweater or a sewing kit or an adapter that fits. If I'm in a village in Bangladesh, I wouldn't find it. If I'm in a big city, well, I just hate shopping. I don't want to go look for things that I might need. And, you know, I probably wouldn't find the things I really want, like... I can't buy shoes abroad, I have very wide feet, there's nothing that fits. Bras and bikini tops or even sweaters are very very difficult because I'm an ample bosomed woman and the world does not really cater to us that well. Second, I don't particularly like doing laundry. Back home I do it about every two weeks, you know, a big batch of it. and. That's all right. I don't want to do it more often when I go traveling. So I need clothes for two weeks. You know, even if I were to let my hostel do the laundry for me, I'm a fast traveler. I'd probably be out of the place before I get my clothes back. And then finally, I'm bipolar. I need my medication and I have to take quite a lot of it. You know, back up in case I lose one bag. I have to have something in another bag. So in all, there's a lot of stuff that I want or need to carry with me and um, doesn't bother me at all though. I quite like carrying the big backpack. I have a very interesting back problem. It's different from most other people because I it. what really helps me is carrying heavy loads. The more I carry, the less pain I'm in. Uh, so my back is never as good as after two months With a you know twenty or twenty-three kilo backpack, Uh, also it makes me look fierce. You know, you don't want to mess with a not admittedly tiny woman, but you know who can swing a big backpack on her her back and just march off into the distance. It's uh, you might want to, but I think they'd rather choose someone who doesn't look like she can defend herself at all. So yeah. I'm happy with it. If I'd go travelling for a short time, I might consider uh, travelling with only a carry-on. But I don't really see the benefit of it. If there's anything that I think I might want or need that doesn't fit in the carry-on, no, I'm not taking it. I'll go with the backpack and I'll fill it up to the very rim.
1: Note that this time next year I'm planning on travelling with Inga around part of West Africa for a couple of months. We're going to look a right sight, her with a huge backpack and me with, well... One of the phrases I used to have on my old blog tagline was travel light. It was supposed to symbolise my ephemeral travel nature, my preference for being barefoot, my liking for not spending too long in one place, but most of all, the fact that I tend to travel with very little luggage, regardless of how long I was travelling for. For several years, and a fair amount of travel covering six continents, well, five continents in Chile, I won't lie, South America is a largely empty patch of knowledge on my map. I only travelled with hand luggage, that is to say, with a backpack that was small enough to fit within the regulations of cabin baggage for most airlines. There's a number of reasons why I prefer to travel like this. See, I love efficiency and have a distaste for boredom. Having only hand luggage makes airports much, much easier to travel through in both directions. Not having anything to check in means that I can do everything online, including get my boarding pass. So all I need to do at the airport is literally walk through the door and go straight to security. One of the questions often asked as a discussion point on Travel Twitter is how long do you get to the airport for before your flight leaves? My answer is generally about five minutes before check-in closes. My rationale is simple. If people are still checking in, then logically they have, by definition, time to get through security and to the gate. Since I don't have to do anything other than go through security, there's no point in me getting to the airport any later than the latest check-in time. The other advantage I have in airports is at the other end, of course. While less of a benefit in places with strong, admin-heavy or just incredibly slow immigration, Vanuatu, I'm looking at you here for the last one. In most countries I've flown into, I'm out the door and halfway into town before some people's baggages are all passing the carousel in the arrivals hall. It also means I have the bag with me at all times and don't have the lottery of, will it turn up or has it got lost? Backpacks are notorious for getting jammed in the mechanism of airport baggage systems. It's also nice to see bewildered looks on the part of the officials in baggage reclaim. I did even, I think it was in Canada, one of them came up to me and asked, just to check, you haven't forgotten to pick up your bags have you? Which was a nice touch. Also with regard to airlines, and I'm thinking primarily of the budget carrier so prevalent across Europe and Southeast Asia, there's a tendency to charge extra for hold baggage these days, so only having cabin luggage proves a cost saving. Some airlines, like Wiz and Ryanair, charge a little extra for larger sized cabin baggage, as in, where it fit under the seat size, but doing that is still cheaper than getting a hold bag. My main reason for only carrying hand luggage, though, is because it's simply so much easier to cart around. There's a couple of aspects to this. Firstly, as you may have noticed, I'm not the biggest or strongest chap in the universe. While I hauled a 20kg backpack whilst walking across Great Britain for 57 days, it must be remembered that the first few days of that adventure were pretty hard going, especially as it involved hiking over a lot of sand. And if I'm going to enjoy myself on an adventure in a warm climate, I don't want it to feel like some kind of military fatigue. I do walk a lot, so regardless of where I am, I'll be carrying that bag with me for quite a lot of the time. Related to this is that my travel style tends to be one of moving very quickly between places, and as you already know, as cheaply as possible. This means in part I don't want anything too big, as I'd be tempted to fill it, and that would make unpacking and repacking take forever, when all I might want to do is take 5 minutes at 5.49am in preparation for an early bus out to the next town. And of course, arriving becomes easier and more flexible too, so if the train gets in at 8am but I can't check into wherever until 3pm, that's no problem with hand luggage, it's just much less awkward to cart around and it doesn't get in the way when you sit in pubs and cafes. Then, of course, in the first place, I've got to get it on the bus, or the motor taxi, or whatever. And as you probably know, the sort of countries I go to have a, shall we say, vague approach to both logistics and health and safety. So having a small backpack I can fit between my knees on the back of a crowded minibus is infinitely preferable to having a huge backpack that there may not be too much room for. It also makes it far easier to keep track of and not have to worry about it bouncing down the road after one too many potholes. Speaking of motor taxis, by the way, The very first time I caught one was for a journey through a remote part of southern Thailand for a few miles on the way to the Cambodian border. That was my real first solo backpacking trip in such an environment and therefore I wasn't quite up to speed with what and how I should pack. I think I had a 60 litre backpack and it was pretty full. Anyway, I get on the back of the motor scooter thing, we go about 200 metres down the road and because of the weight of the pack on my back it unbalanced the whole thing and we tipped over. Slightly embarrassing. We ended up having to put the backpack on its side in front of me and behind the driver and I pretty much had to cling on to it to make sure it didn't fall off rather than clinging on to the driver. In addition, the road to the border was up a pretty long and steady hill. About two-thirds of the way up it, we were going so slow I wondered if there was actually too much weight on the bike for us to make it. Fortunately, we did, obviously. Now, there are, of course, disadvantages with taking something so small but I like to think of them more as compromises. How much am I prepared to leave behind in return for an easier bag to carry? The biggest choice is, of course, literally what to take, especially with regard to clothing, which makes up most of the bulk, if not necessarily the weight of the bag. My basic principle, however, is quite logical. It's just a question of how often do I want to be washing clothes, assuming I want to wear something clean every day. Admittedly, on my hike across Britain, this wasn't a concern, since I knew the next day I'd just get all hot and sweaty again anyway, and with no one else around to care very much, and even those who were also hiking were probably having similar thoughts, it didn't feel like an important concern. On my backpacking trips, though, I tend to feel about every four to five days is about optimal. I am not Inga. On most of my trips, I'll usually have two nights somewhere with about that regularity, and in any case, most hostels have pretty decent tumble dryers. Sometimes it doesn't work out like that, but it's amazing what you can do with some shower gel and a chair. This means, logically, I pack the same amount of clothing, about four days' worth, plus what I'm wearing to travel out in, whether I go for a week or two and a half months. The only difference is how often the clothes get washed. I'm aware there are some hardcore backpackers out there who take literally two t-shirts, the one they're wearing and one other, and go from there. But I'm a little more of a flashbacker than that. In fact, on one group tour trip I did to China many years ago, one of the other chaps with us had just been backpacking Indonesia for, what, two months or so? And his policy had been to buy a new t-shirt every day for a small amount of change, like 15 to 20 pence or something, and then get rid of it that night. Not exactly sustainable, I mean I hope he donated it rather than throwing it away, but this was 2002 and backpacker ethics were somewhat less entrenched then, though of course one could argue he was helping out the local economy. But certainly it meant he didn't need to carry very much. Another restriction on clothing is perhaps less obvious. I'm generally restricted to relatively lightweight clothes. Bulky coats and sweaters just don't work as they don't pack down very well. There's an adage that you should wear the bulkiest items on the plane, but that only works if you're going to be stationed somewhere for a week or two. In my case, I still have to carry it from place to place, and I really don't want to have to wear all my bulkiest clothes in an African minibus. It's hard enough having to wear shoes on an African minibus, which I generally didn't anyway. Mind you, most of the world is warmer and drier than the UK, so this is rarely a problem, and even when I do travel in cold weather, I'm rarely switching in between the two. A couple of years ago, I did do some travelling through Central Europe in early March, during the height of a particularly vicious arctic blast, the Beast from the East, where the temperatures in Poland fell to about minus 16 Celsius. Since it was uniformly clothed across the entire trip, I was wearing my bulkiest clothes pretty much permanently. I say bulkiest. Furry Chinese army hat, fairly thin gloves, and a hoodie thing with a zip that I occasionally, gosh, had to zip up. It was a dry cold, not one that bites you inside like the UK. Now, one of my best friends, Laura Nundal, comes from Minnesota and takes pride of having gone to college in Duluth, which is on average the coldest town in the contiguous 48 states of the USA. I can just hear her right now laughing at me, shaking her head and saying, boy, you don't know what winter is. There are other challenges with only carrying hand luggage, of course. One of the most famous is liquids and sprays. Now, obviously only an absolute challenge for flying and less of a problem for getting the train, but even so, if you're only carrying a small backpack, you don't really want to be carting around large numbers of bottles anyway. Of course, pretty much everywhere I go, I can get replacements. I tend to carry only toothpaste because I have a specific brand I use, nail varnish, mostly ditto. Also, my social anxiety means I'd rather not lurk around a display of nail varnish in a country where I don't speak the language. And hand sanitizer because that stuff is the shits, and I use a lot of it anyway. I've taken to travelling with a bar of soap rather than shower gel, which reacts out much better than my one attempt at powdered toothpaste. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but if you only take out one tip from this podcast, it would be this. Don't. There are several problems with it. Firstly, it's actually not that easy to use, and I don't really get a good lather with it, I've found. But even when you do get enough of it to make a difference, you quickly realise why you shouldn't have bothered. It's absolutely foul. You spend the rest of the day with your mouth tasting halfway between mouldy herbs and bitter tobacco. Powdered toothpaste has one of the weird features that makes it unsuitable as a travel hack. It has a tendency to make the airport scanners at security light up like a pinball machine, The glow on their monitors is a bright green or yellow and that sort of thing always leads to questions you don't really want to answer especially given that it's generally a white powder. Some things are not worth compromising on. One thing I do end up compromising on when finalising packings though that most people would include is a towel. I am aware you should always know where your towel is and indeed I do. It's generally back home with all my other stuff. I often don't travel with one for a number of reasons but mainly because you know, everywhere I stay I can either use or hire one. And also because unless I'm travelling in a hot country, it'll take a while to dry and I don't want to pack my luggage with something big and wet. That is not a euphemism. Stop giggling at the back. I do have one of those microfiber towels which has the advantage of being thin and compact but has the disadvantage of, well, not really working as a towel. It's actually quite telling to know what else I don't pack. The way I see it, when I'm at home I don't use a lot of extra stuff, aside from my desktop computer, so why would I take much with me when I travel, just in case? I'll concede I'm unusual in some respects though, I mean for example I don't tend to listen to music when I travel, though obviously of late I'm getting into podcasts, but it only requires headphones. And I have a very stereotypical backpacker hygiene regime, make of that what you will, so I will naturally pack less than many other people. And because I aim to be always busy, that's looking round, exploring, walking or lost in the wonderful world of local beers, I tend not to carry much to pass the time with, as I try to make sure I don't have a lot of downtime in the first place. Even when I'm on a bus or train, I'll spend most of the time looking out the window, so I won't need to distract myself with other stuff. Even at night, through Ohio, I'm easily pleased, evidently. Obviously, every trip is unique and requires me to carry slightly different items of luggage, So, for example, in Central Asia, I needed to take walking boots because I was going to do some hiking in the mountains. Whereas for West Africa, I didn't have any footwear in the bag and only took with me the sandals I was wearing at the time, which by the end of the trip had pretty much fallen apart from overuse. But in the main, my luggage is usually the same. Clothing, small amount of toiletries, electrical items, notebook and pen, several pens, a toilet roll, because you never know, and a small fabric hippie day pack. Also, each journey you take, you learn more about what you need and use, as well as what you don't. On my trip to Central Asia, I took an electric beard trimmer. When I tried to charge it, I found, presumably for voltage reasons, it wasn't. Then I lost the charger anyway, because I do that. Second pro tip, don't take an electric hair trimmer on holiday. Go to a barber like normal people. I do take with me a myriad of electrical equipment, including a camera, which is usually attached to my belt, to be fair, an e-reader, a phone, and often a tablet computer. For a couple of years, everything electrical could charge using the same USB lead, making it much easier to carry them all. This is, by the way, one of the reasons I could never have an iPhone. I confess the e-reader is probably the most luxury item I genuinely travel with. I don't need it, but it's much easier to read on that than on a tablet. Not that I read much at all, to be honest, but it's my only nice-to-have-just-in-case item. My problem now is that my tablet is very old and unreliable. Also, given my more nomadic nature these days, I've bought a full-sized laptop, essentially to replace my desktop computer, although interestingly it hasn't, so that on my most recent trip interrelling around Europe, saw me having to carry my full 68-litre backpack that I used on my cross-Britain hike, which, when I flew back to the UK at the end of stage one of the journey, probably got stuck in the mechanisms of Copenhagen Airport luggage system, and I didn't see it for the next five days. There are two backpacks I generally use. The main one I've had on most of my trips, and it's quite ragged now, but needs a bit of either repair or a complete replacement, is a 45 litre pack with dimensions of 52 by 20 by 32. If it's comfortably in hand luggage on planes, in the overhead racks, on coaches and trains, and with two fairly good sized side pouches and a top pocket, all zippable, it's easier to separate and store stuff as necessary. It's been pretty sturdy and served me well, though I don't exactly treat my backpacks with that much respect. There's no waist or chest strap, which suits me fine, easy to slip on and off, but others might find some issues with this. My other pack, used on shorter trips of around two weeks' length, is... Well, it's the old laptop bike from the company I used to work for. I'm honestly not sure of its official dimensions or even its capacity. If it's a laptop. And a few other things. Uh, That's about it. Aside from the main section, it has two front pouches and a small side pocket either side, all zippable. It has the advantage of fitting under the seats of aeroplanes, making it the ultimate budget choice, but of course has a smaller capacity. Generally, when I take my larger backpack, it tends to weigh in at between 7 and 10 kilograms. I don't often know how much, because I've noticed the check-in staff tend to see my backpack and don't even give it a second glance, so I've never been challenged over it or had it weighed at the airport. Indeed, once I was carrying some larger liquids, suntan lotion I think, and had to convince check-in staff to take it. I've never weighed my smaller one as simply as in any other point other than, well, pure curiosity I guess. I don't know if I can get my regime any smaller. Though I carry a hippie fabric day pack, it's incredibly unlikely I'll ever go for a two-week journey with just that. Though I'm possibly up for the challenge, it would have to be somewhere particularly stress-free, barefoot-friendly, warm and flat, yet still interesting enough for me not to get bored. But it is very interesting to try to push the limits of what's considered possible. One final advantage of travelling so light. It means I can't bring back souvenirs to clutter to my house with. It does make markets considerably less interesting, though. Anyway... That's just about all for this week. Next time, all being well, I should have an experimental podcast where I chat with one of my Twitter friends for a bit about travel, but we'll see if that ends up working. It may not. I've never done a chat-style pod before, so all manner of things could happen to mess it up, but at least I'll have given it a try, eh? Until then, don't have nightmares, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Nashville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com If you want to contact me I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at backpackercom Until next time have a safe journey. Bye for now.